friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, and we haven't gone too crazy yet in quarantine, have we, David? Not too crazy, no. Still sane enough to do a history podcast, or is it insane enough to do a history podcast? I can never remember. I think it's the second one. All right, then. Let's do it. David, as always, oh, brother, when art thou? Neil? It's the night of February 14th, 1915, and on top of the Parliament buildings in Ottawa, a poor frozen soldier stands clutching his Ross rifle, staring out into the dark sky, watching for the aeroplanes which Prime Minister Robert Borden has ordered him to shoot down when they arrive. David, this doesn't sound like much of a Valentine's Day date for this poor soldier sitting on top of the Parliament building in February. I've been in Ottawa in February. It would not have been warm. It would not be a pleasant task to get, no. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but the Ross rifle was a personal rifle. How is he going to shoot down an airplane with it? Certainly that's one of the several problems that he faces is the fact, I mean, you have to remember this is 1915, airplanes are new, they're poorly understood both by militaries and by the general public, and they're much less capable of high altitude, high speed flight than later models will be, but still gunning one down with a rifle would be fairly unlikely. Luckily for our poor shivering soldier, it's also very unlikely that any kind of an airplane, but certainly an enemy airplane, will be flying over Ottawa in 1915. Right. Of course, this is World War One that we're talking about, and World War One, for the most part, took place in Europe maybe a little bit of uh, the Mediterranean, some different areas, but certainly not Ottawa. Why did Robert Borden, the Prime Minister, think there was going to be a plane for this soldier to shoot down? Well, on this particular night, the initial reports came in from Brockville by telephone. The police chief in Brockville frantically called the uh, Parliament buildings in Ottawa to report that multiple citizens had seen mysterious lights in the sky that could only be a bombing raid by German sympathizers in the U.S. crossing the border, something which the Canadian government had been fearing for some time. And with that report in, Prime Minister Borden ordered that other towns along the route between Ottawa and Brockville be contacted to see if they had seen anything suspicious. And in general, 
when various local officials were contacted, they all felt that they had heard or seen something in the sky, which is what built up the increasing fear in the political leadership in Ottawa until eventually a full blackout of Ottawa was ordered, although there was no system in place to actually achieve that. And then when it became clear that a blackout wasn't going to work, they turned to plan B, which was putting somebody up at the top of the peace tower with a Ross rifle to try and shoot it down as the last resort. Okay, David, so some of this is making sense. Brockville's close to the border, close to St. Lawrence, so if the planes were coming from the States, they would fly over Brockville, presumably on their way to Ottawa, and presumably if you were launching a bombing raid on Canada, you'd want to hit Ottawa, the capital city. But David, it doesn't seem like they were very well planned for this eventuality, considering plan A was a blackout that couldn't work, and plan B is this lone soldier with his Ross rifle on the Parliament building. Well, the thing is that the Canadian government at the time was afraid of a lot of things. It seems a little crazy right now, looking back on it, to think that the Canadian government was particularly afraid that the war, the World War, was going to come into Canada, was going to erupt into violent conflict on Canadian soil. But they were. And the reason for that, well, there's several reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is because there were persistent rumors that the German embassy staff in Washington, D.C. were planning some kind of ambitious invasion or attack or sabotage to take place on Canadian soil to interrupt the British Empire's war effort. And the reason why there were all of these rumors was because, in point of fact, the German embassy staff in Washington, D.C. were trying to put together ambitious plans to attack Canada in a lot of different ways. Okay, so... We have some basis, in fact, for the Canadian fears. The Germans have these plans. What sorts of things were they thinking of, David? Well, the first set of plans were small-scale sabotage actions. Attacks on Canada's industrial capacity to try and weaken the country and divert Canadian forces from the battlefront in Europe to defending Canada. And one of the reasons why on February 14th, Robert Borden was so concerned about this report of mysterious lights in the sky is because earlier that same month, on February 2nd, 1915, there'd been an attack at... Ventsboro International Bridge between Maine and New Brunswick. A German army officer from South America had 
attempted to blow up the bridge and did some fairly significant damage with dynamite, although the bridge still stood and was repaired. So there was some action in Canada, so to speak. There was these attacks, some small sabotage, some attempts by the Germans to try and attract the attention of the British Empire in Canada and force some of their forces to stay in Canada. But David, did they have any sort of capability of an air attack? No. The air attack was a product of the imagination of Canadians who were afraid, possibly justifiably, as the first verified attacks from German saboteurs occurred that the Germans would have something bigger and something better than one guy with not very much dynamite on the main New Brunswick border on foot. And the question in people's minds was, how could the German embassy in the U.S. launch a meaningful attack if they're willing to try this if they think that there's some value in this kind of operation how could they be more dangerous than just one guy and a bit of dynamite and the idea that aircraft would be the method popped up very early because as i've already mentioned aircraft were new and exciting And people were speculating about how they were going to change the face of war, which of course they did eventually. And the idea that the Germans might be ahead and might have something was in people's minds. And this led to a rash of sightings. The first well-documented series of UFO sightings in Canada are all of these reports of German airplanes and zeppelins flying above Canadian cities, usually reported as lights in the sky or mysterious aerial phenomena that people were convinced were German airplanes. There's actually several reports of army forces in various towns opening fire at the sky, only to find out later that there was nothing there. And this is interesting to historians, firstly, as an example of the UFO reporting phenomenon, which would become more familiar to us later with the idea of aliens. But it's also interesting as an example of what people thought war might be like or would be like in 1914 when they really didn't know what the Germans could or couldn't do. How do we know they weren't really UFOs, David? They weren't just aliens. Well, we don't. I mean, we know that the Canadian forces who opened fire didn't hit anything. But to be fair, if there were aliens up there, they probably would have been able to fly high enough to avoid a rifle bullet. So, really, there's no way to be 100% sure. Do-do-do-do. All right, David. So putting aside the UFO conspiracy theories, what happened on February 14th? What happens to our poor soldier sitting above the parliament buildings, preparing by himself with his rifle to fend off the German 
air invasion. Well, as you would expect, he ends up stuck on top of the Peace Tower all night, poor guy, and comes down the next morning, probably unhappy, with nothing in particular having happened over the skies of Ottawa to report that clearly all of this had been overblown and wildly implausible and really the Germans probably weren't up to anything at all. But in fact, the German embassy did have ambitious plans and just because they hadn't managed to put an aerial fleet over Ottawa doesn't mean that they didn't have their own crazy plan to try and change the course of World War One. So if it wasn't going to be airplanes flying past Brockville on their way to Ottawa, David, what was the crazy German plan? Cowboys, Neil. So the German plan to cover this, we need to start with Franz von Papen. Herr von Papen was a German embassy official in Washington, D.C., and he was also a spy working for the German intelligence services as their top officer in their U.S. embassy. So when war broke out, they contacted him and asked him to come up with a plan to cripple Canada's war effort. And, of course, Herr von Papen immediately began drawing up plans to recreate the Fenian raids, which were really only 50 years in the past at that point. So the idea that you could do something like that was considered maybe a bit less crazy than it would sound today. All right, David, we've talked about the Fenian raids before, way back in episode six, the accidental invasion. This was a plan by Irish Americans to invade Canada and then they were hoping to trade Canada to the Brits in exchange for Ireland. Exactly. Like you said, it wasn't that long before World War I that they were trying this crazy plan. Never really worked out that well for the Fenians, especially in our story in Episode 6. Didn't work out well for them at all. Why did the Germans think it would be worth dusting off this plan? Well, the first plan that Herr von Papen drew up, he was actually trying to reach out to Irish-American groups to do this again with German funding this time. He didn't think they could succeed, but he hoped that firstly, an attack would distract Canadian resources away from the Western Front in Europe, which was the critical front of the war from the German perspective. And secondly, that an attack by not obviously German forces might strain relations between Canada and the United States, which could draw even more Canadian forces needing to guard the border in a time of heightened tensions between the two countries. So what did the Irish Americans say, David, when the Germans came to them saying, we want to revive your old plan of invading Canada? Well, if we want to keep this one family-friendly, we're going to have to paraphrase. But the essential point was that they weren't interested in this plan. You often have to paraphrase the Irish to keep them family-friendly. So, after that, 
von Papen began considering whether there was a different way to get together a large force to attack Canada from the United States, which wouldn't be obviously connected to the German government. And as he examined a map of Canada that marked reported troop concentrations where Canada was raising troops, he noted that if you go farther out west towards Manitoba and Saskatchewan, Canadian troops are very thin on the ground. So he thought that perhaps a force recruited out west could invade Canada and even if they weren't militarily successful, nonetheless remain on Canadian soil for a long period of time just because it would be hard for the Canadians to get troops there to get rid of them. That is the problem with Canada, David. It is so big that if you get lost, it can be hard to track you down. So is this where we get to the Cowboys? So this is where Von Papen decided he needed to learn about what was out in the American West that could be recruited for this plan. And he went to everyone's favorite accurate research source for information about what life is like. He watched some Hollywood movies. Which ones? Well, mostly westerns, I guess. Makes sense. He reported back to Berlin that he believed that 50,000 cowboys could easily be recruited in the state of Montana, given how prevalent they seemed to be and reports about how mechanization was putting cowboys out of work at this time. So he thought, all we have to do, go out to Montana, hire a bunch of cowboys, all of whom will have six shooters and rifles, because anyone who's seen Hollywood knows that cowboys are never unarmed, and send them north. David, as someone who's watched a lot of Hollywood movies, this sounds like a great plan to me. But Berlin had a problem with the plan. This sounds just like Hollywood, David. There's always some meddling bureaucrat who has a problem with our great plan. The problem that the diplomatic office in Berlin had with this plan was that the cowboys wouldn't be in uniform. And that was illegal under the laws of war. So was everything else about this plan, obviously, but they were fine, I guess, with all the rest of it, but not with the out-of-uniform thing. So, over the course of almost six months, a series of cables were sent back and forth trying to sort out what would be an acceptable cowboy uniform for the hypothetical cowboy mercenaries to wear while they invaded Canada. And what did they come up with, David? Well, they eventually basically came up with a somewhat unrealistic standard cowboy garb, mostly based on the Hollywood movies, which were also available in Berlin, conveniently, which they assumed that the cowboys would be able to get themselves but look the same for that uniform quality, and then a set of badges which would be issued so that they would be worn on the sleeves of the shirt, varying for officers, for sergeants, for privates. It was all quite well thought out. Okay, David, so that part might have been well thought out, but did they get around to actually recruiting some cowboys? No. I mean, Von Papen did try to send out some agents 
to Montana, but those agents pretty quickly reported that there was no massive horde of unemployed cowboys wandering around in Montana. And as it became clear that they were not going to be able to rapidly raise a already armed force of unemployed cowboys, since most of the cowboys who'd been made unemployed by technology had already moved back to the cities where there were jobs. So the entire plan fell apart on them. And that was one invasion Canada didn't have to end up fighting off. But that's not the end of Franz von Papen and his attempts to grind the Allied war effort to a halt. All right, David. So we've tried cowboys. The Canadians think they're going to try airplanes. What else can von Papen possibly come up with? I've already discussed the Vanceboro bombing, the other large attempt to sabotage a Canadian war materials factory occurred at Walkerville, near Windsor, just across the river from Detroit, where a local German-American Detroit citizen was recruited to cross the river and blow up a Canadian uniform factory and also the drill hall for the local Canadian unit which was being raised to go to France. The bomb in the uniform factory went off and did some significant damage, but luckily caused no fatalities. The bomb in the drill hall failed. It was a mechanical issue with the timer, uh, which is lucky because it very likely would have killed a large number of people had it exploded. So the Germans have had some success with sort of minor sabotage, traditional bombing of factories and bridges. Exactly. But it's definitely not as sexy as cowboys or airplanes. It is not as sexy as cowboys or aliens, but it was what was working for von Papen. And that's what drove his next crazy plan. Well, two crazy plans, actually. Because by this point, we're getting into 1916. And things are looking bad for Germany. Substantially worse than they did earlier in the war. And America is looking more and more friendly towards Britain as more and more American firms supply war material to the British army. And as the blockade of Germany means that less and less trade is going on between those two countries. And that led von Papen and his superiors in Berlin to decide to launch a series of attacks, not on Canada, but on America itself. This seems like a bad idea, David. What do they say about poking the tiger? Sometimes you gotta grab a tiger by its tail and then get horribly, horribly mauled. That's a lesson everyone has to learn, I guess. The largest attack of the war, the largest sabotage attack of the First World War, is called the Black Tom Attack. Occurred in 1916, Long Island, very close to New York City. Luckily, the munitions factory they attacked was on its own separate island, 
but even so, dozens of workmen were killed or injured, and millions of dollars of damage was done, and the American Bureau of Investigation, the then-existing predecessor to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was dispatched to find the culprits, and although it was hard for them to prove that the German embassy was at fault, it took them a very short time to realize that this was most likely the work of the German embassy, and from their earlier investigations involving the Canadian sabotage incidents, suspicion fell on von Papen practically immediately. So David, the Germans have had a successful attack in the U.S., but is this going to be the end of von Papen and his ability to run plans now that the Americans are suspicious of him? The end of his ability to effectively run plans, yes. Von Papen will end up being sent home in 1917 when America joins the war for partially unrelated reasons, although the Black Tom incident certainly wasn't unrelated. Even as he's being expelled, the Bureau of Investigation is running down his efforts to work with Irish and Indian revolutionary movements that had exiles present in the U.S. to attack the British Empire in those countries, which will lead to a fantastically complicated series of trials related to how he was funding them, where the money was going, efforts to ship arms to Ireland. He has a lot of crazy plans going on at this point, but none of them will have another successful attack simply because of the amount of investigation that he's under. That's really the end for von Papen and his spying in the First World War. So, David, it was some mixed results, for sure, for the German embassy in the U.S., as they had some success with a few bombing attacks, but no big success with the cowboy-type plans. No, the more ambitious the schemes were, the less successful they tended to be. A lesson that the entire world would wish that von Papen had learned in the First World War because it would be his crazy scheme to try and become Chancellor of Germany, which would lead to putting Adolf Hitler into that same position. Did this one involve cowboys too, David? No cowboys, just depressing German politics. So David, thanks for telling us this story about how a bunch of unidentified flying objects, which turned out to be nothing at all, were a forewarning to what the Germans were doing and what the Germans were planning. And although they had some success, in the end, crazy plans tend to be crazy plans. You get more damage on the backfire than you tend to get when they actually work. Case in point, Adolf Hitler becoming the head of Germany in the 1930s. That would be a very bad one, yes. Well, David, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure you leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app and give us a follow at When Art Thou on your favorite social media app. We would love to connect with you. And 
if you are interested more in those Fenian raids, go back to episode six, The Accidental Invasion. And it is quite a funny story about how the Fenians got lost trying to invade Canada. David, we always like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz now? I suppose I could be persuaded to a quiz, Neil. All right, Easter's a little different this year, David, with everyone being stuck inside, but there is one person allowed, officially allowed, to go around on Easter to everyone's house. That, of course, is the Easter Bunny. And our spies got a list of where the Easter Bunny was stopping this year to leave some chocolates behind. So for the quiz, your job is to guess who the Easter Bunny was visiting. All right. Start off with a nice easy one here. His first stop was at Monticello. Monticello with Thomas Jefferson? You got it, David. That was the Easter Bunny's first stop. Next, he was off to Robin Island. Robin Island. I really don't know who would live on Robin Island. The Easter Bunny was visiting Nelson Mandela. That's the jail where he spent most of his 27 years in prison. Ah. The Easter Bunny's next stop was on a ship, David, the HMS Victory. The HMS Victory. Not the flagship of Nelson at Trafalgar. That very ship. So a few chocolate eggs for Lord Nelson. Then it was off to Walden Pond. Walden Pond with Henry David Thoreau busy writing? That's it, David. Our final stop for the Easter Bunny, David, was Vostok 1. Vostok 1. Sounds like a Soviet spaceship to me. I'm not entirely up on my cosmonauts, so I'll guess Yuri Gagarin. You're correct, David. That's the ship on which he became the first man in space. Thanks for playing along, David. Always happy to, Neil. And thanks for listening.